You are listening to the Four Persons Network. We are Blog Talk Radio's one and only authentic Catholic defenders of the deeper truths of our sacred faith. To learn more about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. If you would like to call in tonight with your comment or question, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. For follow-up information after the show, email us anytime at email at thefourpersons.com. That's email at thefourpersons.com. Now sit back and enjoy the show. And now, let me formally introduce our guest, Dustin Quick. Welcome to the Four Persons Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, brother. God bless you, and thanks for having me. It's a wonderful opportunity. So blessed to be here. Well, thank you so much. And uh, when I... This is the second blog talk radio show that I started. The first one... um, was taken over by saboteurs, unfortunately, Uh, but it happens. Uh, But this one, we wanted to make sure that we do it right, and we want to get the best of the best. So I'll be honest with you. When I started asking people that I knew and respected on Catholic circles, uh, people like William Hemsworth, people like that, your your name came up quite a bit as this is a guy that you need to contact. This is a guy that you need to have on your show. So first of all, I want to talk about what you do on uh, your online presence. You have a YouTube channel. Tell our audience about what you do on your YouTube channel. Yes, certainly. Thank you. So I have a a YouTube podcast. It used to be on uh, other platforms like Apple and iTunes and well, that is iTunes, Apple, Android and uh, other platforms like that. But I I, uh, switched to live streaming on YouTube um, solely. So the title of my podcast is Holy Smokes, Cigars, Catholicism and Conversation. And I started it in July of 2020. My wife, uh, Tanya, was actually instrumental in helping me get to get that off the ground. Um, she always told me I needed to write a book or to do a blog or something, but then she said, you know what, you need to do a podcast and get your material out there. So she helped me get my old music equipment from the basement, set me up in the garage, and I was off and running. And so that started in 2020. And what inspired me to start the podcast was I wanted to show how Catholicism was the restoration and fulfillment of the Solomonic Temple and the Davidic Kingdom. Um, because so often we hear, you know, either Catholicism is a mixture of, you know, the, the Semitic monotheism of the Bible with Greco-Roman paganism, or it's just the faith got corrupted over time and had barnacles attached that needed to be, uh, you know, thrown off. And I wanted to show, no, in fact, our faith goes way back. It's biblically rooted. It's ancient. It goes back to the first temple, the Melchizedek priesthood and and it's actually the religion of Abraham. So I wanted to go and and show that. And I started off pretty humbly. Um, I don't have many subscribers at this point. I'm hoping to get more. Um, Not that it's all about numbers, but, you know, by God's grace, I just want to touch more people. Um, But I've been blessed to have some pretty esteemed guests on uh, thus far, such as Scott Hahn, uh, Jimmy Aiken, Brant Petrie, John Bergsma, 
uh, Tim Staples, folks like that. And uh, so, yeah, I, I do temple theology. I do uh, apologetics, church history, spiritual issues, and contemporary church issues as well I cover. So that's my, my podcast in a nutshell. Wow, those are some heavy hitters. Um, let's talk about one of them in particular because this is uh, you're touching on themes that are near and dear to my heart. Uh, let's talk about Scott Hahn. And the reason why I want to focus on Scott Hahn is because when he talked about his conversion story, and we'll talk about yours in, in a little while, when he talked about his conversion story, one of the themes that came up over and over again, Dustin, is when he started to recognize the Old Testament typologies, especially Old Testament typologies having to do with our Blessed Mother. Uh, mm. He saw her in the uh, in the Queen at the right hand of the master in Psalm 45. He saw her as both the mother of Solomon and Adonijah as the queen mother in 1 Kings chapter 2. And and then, obviously, in Genesis 3, the the proto-gospel, and then the fulfillment of that, we see the fulfillment of that in Luke, we see it in John 19, and then we see it in Revelation 12. This is near and dear to my heart. The other one that's a real that was a real eye opener for me that you mentioned is Melchizedek, because mm. the pre, the priesthood of Melchizedek is actually mentioned in Scripture before the priesthood of Aaron. It Correct. actually comes before it, uh, and um, you know what really opened my eyes to Melchizedek was uh, I've been on a Catholic reading binge for the last two and a half years. It's incredible. I've read probably 20,000 pages of Catholic books. Wow, yeah. I, I decided to read the entire works of Ca- uh, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. Have you read that? Uh, I've, I've glanced at bits and pieces of it. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost 800 pages, and the book is like almost a foot tall, so it's it's a lot of reading. Right. But what I noticed, what I noticed Literally, from page, I think the first mention is on page 11, all the way through to like page 750, over and over and over again, Melchizedek comes up. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. And she makes Melchizedek out to be this larger-than-life figure. And when you get into Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 7, what is said about Melchizedek is really fascinating. It, it it almost sounds like Hebrews is telling us that Melchizedek is is Christ mm-hmm. passed through time. That's what it almost sounds like. Yeah. How much how much of an eye opener was that for you? Uh, pretty huge, um, because you know, coming from I don't want to jump too far ahead into my story, but um, coming from an Islamic background. You know, we're always taught that Islam is the religion of Abraham. And so the more I started to study, I realized, you know, there's there's something fundamental about the religion of Abraham in, in the Hebrew Bible, which is Melchizedek. And it's I found that fascinating because, you know, here comes Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, king of Salem, king of righteousness, king of peace. And Abraham offers him a sacrifice of bread and wine. And I thought that was pretty interesting because number one islam prides itself on having no priesthood no clergy no hierarchy um you could say it's like a priesthood of all believers but they don't even speak in priestly language 
um, and they're definitely lacking the Eucharistic sacrifice, which, you know, obviously Melchizedek fulfills. So if Melchizedek and his priesthood is fundamental to the religion of Abraham, then that disqualifies Islam as the religion of Abraham, that which it claims to be. So that was uh, one of the ways in which it opened my eyes uh, to see that, no, in fact, Christianity is the religion of Abraham, the fulfillment of all the covenants, the Melchizedek priesthood, which, like, as you said, predates the Aaronic, the Levitical. It's superior. Um, it's a Gentile priesthood, which is also, which is also interesting. And, yeah, the you know, fundamental elements of the sacrifice being, being bread and wine. And um, I'm, I'm quite convinced, actually, that the appearance of Melchizedek in Genesis was the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Yeah, no, I, I think you can't get you can't read through Hebrews six and seven without coming to that conclusion. I mean, it says he has no beginning, he has no end, he has no genealogy. Who yeah. else could that refer to? Uh, right. So, yeah. Uh, but the other thing about Melchizedek, um, the links to which Anne Catherine Emmerich, and, and let's, folks, for those of you who don't know who Anne Catherine Emmerich is, all right. If you've watched Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, and you were as moved by that movie as I was, so when you look at that movie and you see all these little scenes and all these little details uh, that are not in the Bible, where did he get all these details from? Well, he got these details from two principal works of Catholicism, and one is The Mystical City of God, a four-volume mm. set by uh, St. Maria of Agreta. And uh, full disclosure, I've read that too. That took me a long time to read. And the complete works of Anne Catherine Emmerich. So he draws very, very important on, on, on that, that her mystical visions of, of Christ and the Holy Family are considered among the most important in the history of the Catholic Church. She goes into such great detail about Melchizedek, and one of the insights that she gave that I thought was just mind-blowing. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. So Melchizedek offers blood and wine. Uh, I'm sorry, bread and wine. Uh, in a in a typology, clear typology of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then it says Abraham gave him what was it a tenth of, a of tenth, all. Yeah. Of all everything that he had, so he recognized him as a priest of God even before the priesthood was put in place. Now, this is what's fascinating. Um, and Melchizedek appears other times through history in this book. He makes appearances to different persons hundreds of years removed from this scene. But what's really fascinating here is that after Melchizedek offered the bread and wine, the uh, the chalice and the utensils or, or what have you, that the chalice and the bowls that he used came into the possession of the temple. And mm. over time, uh, they they somehow wound up in a, in a secondhand shop, whatever. And they were bought hundreds of years later by none other than Veronica. That's right, the Veronica who wiped the face of Jesus with the cloth. Mm. Okay? And when Jesus was preparing the Last Supper, the, the Passover, which would be the Last Supper, with the disciples, 
she loaned him the chalice and the cup. So Jesus actually offered the bread and wine with the same chalice and cup that Melchizedek did. Wow, that's pretty profound. Yeah. That is really, wow. really deep, right? Yeah. So so obviously that's not coincidence. God is no. clearly showing us a connection here. Um, and when I started to understand the typology of the Old Testament, that it, it, I explained to some friends of mine that, you know, I'm in the, in the building uh, engineering trade, and I tried to explain it in terms that my friends would understand that if you want to understand how a building is built, if you walk into a building and say, I want to know how this building was put together, what would you do? Well, you'd go to the blueprints. But if you wanted to understand the blueprints, you have to look at the finished structure to understand what mm. it looks like. So you can't understand the blueprints without the finished structure, and you can't understand the finished structure without the blueprints. I've just described the Old and New Testament. The Old Testament is the blueprints. It's right. everything that the, that the final kingdom of God will look like when it's fulfilled. And I have to believe, without even having talked to you, I have to believe that that realization in some way when you saw elements in the Old Testament and then you saw those elements repeated and expanded in the New Testament, that had to have been part of your conversion. Am I right? It absolutely was. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, temple theology was, was and is key in my journey, um, both at the you know initial sort of moments of my conversion and leading up to that, and of course today, because it's something that continues to fascinate me, and I just—it's it, something that I love and I'm passionate about, obviously. So yeah, it, it has a very deep place in my heart and thought. So before we get into your actual uh, your actual story, um, something this the curiosity drives me crazy. I've got to ask you this: the the holy smokes part. Are you like channeling your inner G.K. Chesterton there? Is that what's going on there? Well, I did have a uh, episode with Matt Fratt, who also likes cigars, and we titled the episode "The Pint, the Pipe, or Cigar and the Cross." And of course, that is uh, a take on what G.K. Chesterton, uh, Chesterton said. So, uh, yeah, I would say so. Um, so am I and, and, yeah, and you know, that's one of the other things I'm passionate about is uh, cigars. I really enjoy cigars. Uh, they help me relax, meditate. Um, Oftentimes, I'll pray my rosary or um, just reflect on the mysteries of our faith and commune with God or listen to a podcast or watch an edifying faith-filled YouTube video or what have you. And it's, it almost reminds me of incense. So it's very yeah. meditative, reflective, and it's a hobby that I enjoy. And I combine that with my podcast. So yeah. both best of both I, worlds. And, and you know what I can hear from you, Dustin, is that you are... Uh, the personification of what I really love to hear is this, you dispel this notion that Catholicism is this dark, morose, uh, head hung low, <laughs> trying to, yeah. we're trying to suffer all the time and flagellate ourselves all the time. It's not. It's a, it's a faith of light. It's a faith of joy. Uh, and the deeper you go into our faith, the more filled with, with, with that joy and that elation you are. Has that been your experience? That certainly has been mine. Yeah, I would say so. Um, definitely, you know, a lot of people think Christianity, they think of Puritanism, 
and being dour and not having any fun. But one of the things I love about being Catholic is, you know, all things in moderation uh, are gifts are gifts from God, and uh, they have their end in God, and God wants us to be happy. But at the same time, uh, there's the realization that suffering is real, and uh, not only is it real, but our faith is the only faith on the planet that actually transforms suffering and makes it redemptive to where if we unite our sufferings to the cross of Christ, mm. he can bring graces across the whole globe and the entire cosmos to repair creation, to save souls, to heal sicknesses. Uh, so obviously if we have this view of suffering, it's, it's also life-changing and transformative. Uh, so I would say that there's definitely that aspect to it, which is powerful, but yeah, there's also lighthearted moments and, you know, joy-filled moments and having a good time within moderation and reason it all fits together very nicely, a very, very balanced approach. I love it. Wow. We, we, you and I are just brothers of a different mother. I can tell you that. <laughs> we're, we're, on the, we're on the same track on so many things. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I've had people that I've had these conversations with, okay, yeah, you know, suffering comes into every life, you know. But if you ask me to give one reason, I had a person one time ask me, give me one reason why you would choose Catholicism over all the others. I said, because it is the only faith that makes sense of suffering. The only, it's the only faith that, that makes sense of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then when you understand, okay, my suffering has value. Right. It has value. I, I mean, I'm going through things in my life right now with, with you know, uh, estrangement from family members, and these are very difficult and painful things. But then when you realize, okay, I can take the suffering that you are causing me, offer it up, and use it for your conversion. <laughs> so, Amen, yeah. Way, what you're basically doing is taking a mallet, taking the mallet from the devil, and beating him in the face with his own mallet. <laughs> that's what you're basically doing. I like that, yeah. That's, that's and, a pretty good description, yeah. yeah. That's what you're doing. And, and this is what Paul meant when he said, where death is your victory. Where death is your sting, because everything the devil hurls at us, we can use for our own sanctification, our own purification, our own salvation, which is not at all the intention that he had in mind. Right. And, uh, I, and, I often and, reflect on that reality, you know, and I and I say, I say to the Lord in prayer, um, you know, you allow me. Lord, to say in the boldness of the spirit to the devil, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I, that yeah. scripture always sticks in my head. Yeah. Well, I kind of make it a lot simpler, and I just pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, punch the devil in the face. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> that's, sure. <laughs> that's how I say it. So let's talk about your conversion. Let's talk about where you started. All right. And then, and then let's talk about you know the process and, and the lights as they came on, and then... I want you to wrap it up, but getting to that, okay, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> There's no turning back. I've reached right. that tripping point where, because all of the converts reach that point where they realize, okay, I got to do this. It's yeah. going to cause me relationships. It's going to cause me discomfort, but there's no turning back. So walk us through the process, if you would. All right. Well, how early would you like me to start? Well, let's 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 start. At, you know, your starting point where you're. You know, where, what your your you you said you came from Islam. Yeah, so right. I'll just I'll, I'll quickly give a backstory. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I was uh, baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church. I grew up Protestant. I didn't have any of the sacraments, no um, confirmation, no First Communion, just baptism. But I grew up uh, nominally Protestant, and I was culturally a Christian. Um, Obviously, I was just like any other kid in North America. You know, I didn't really have a, a deep relationship with God. Of course, I was still young. But I got to the point where I would sort of acknowledge God in the background when I needed him. You know, when if there was like a, a test coming up or I was scared about something, I would I would offer up a prayer. But God wasn't really a part of my everyday life and walk. Um, I was just kind of nominally and culturally a Christian. If you would ask me, uh, is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Uh, of course, I would have said yes. I believed in the Trinity. But again, it was more of a cultural thing uh, than any deep, profound, meaningful uh, walk with God at, at, in the early stages, at least. So that's sort of my background. My my mother's side is Catholic. My father's is Protestant. But the majority of my influence came from my father's side. My grandfather was a pastor and uh, his wife, my grandmother, helped him in ministry for many, many years. And uh, my, my grandma's actually still with me to this day. She's get, getting close to 90 and um, mm-hmm. quite amazing. You know, she's got a Bible that's in tatters. It's amazing how that thing still holds together, but she could quote scripture like the back of her hand. She intercedes in prayer for people like I've never seen. Uh, She witnesses to people in the hospital at three in the morning, Uh, just an incredible woman of God. And so uh, looking back, I can kind of see the seeds of, you know, God putting certain people in my life to give me like a love of scripture, a love, love of prayer, and just, uh, the desire to witness for Christ and, and live for Christ. So she was definitely a major influence growing up. Um, on my mother's side, my grandma, who's aptly named Mary, who's uh, passed away, may her memory be eternal. Um, she she was on the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, she didn't talk much about her faith. But I would say in terms of the people that I, I knew and know physically in person, uh, she's probably the holiest woman I've ever known. Mm-hmm. Um, she would give the, you know, the shirt off her back. She sacrificed for her friends and family, bent over backwards, never thought about herself, never complained, never raised her voice, never said a bad word about anybody. Just an incredible, incredible woman. And she just, she put literally, she sacrificed herself for everybody else and put herself last. And so looking back now, I can see just how much she was infused with the Catholic faith, even though she was quiet about you know, the tenets of the faith per se, but just the way she lived her life. And so I, I have a, a, a sneaking suspicion that part of the reason that I came back to the church was through her prayers. And I'd like to believe that. Um, so that was my, you know, sort of early formative period, I would say just nominally, culturally a Christian, like many other people, my age and my background. Um, things started to change by the time I got to uh, university, undergraduate university. Um, I encountered a group called the Black Hebrew Israelites, and uh, they really intrigued me. Their theology was that uh, the black man and woman of North America is, is the lost tribe of Judah, and the other scattered tri- tribes abroad are like the Native Americans, the various uh, Latino populations, and so on. And basically, uh, the white man is Edom is the evil seed, the cursed seed, and he hides the truth of the black Messiah and God's true identity. So this is something that I, I came into and I was very fascinated by. And um, 
I saw myself privileged to have this knowledge and it was sort of a Gnostic thing because, you know, mm-hmm. here I am, mm-hmm. a, Cauc- a Caucasian guy. And who am I to be at the time? I thought it was a blessing, obviously, but to be blessed with this truth that nobody else had and I needed to preach it. So at every every turn, I got, you know, the chance to tell people that, you know, the white Jesus is a cover up, is a lie. Christianity is the white man's religion. The Trinity is the invention of Constantine. And I just went on like this for a while. Um, I stopped eating pork and tried to follow some of the Levitical laws. And um, so that's that's when I started to sort of branch off. And that um, exposure to the black Hebrew Israelites actually was spawned by my exposure to hip hop music. A certain artist was saying certain things which intrigued me and made me want to dig deeper. And so I just, you know, kind of scoured the Internet and uh, kind of fell in line with those beliefs, although I was never part of the movement officially. Um, that was what kind of I conformed to at this at this time. Um after that, I came, I came into contact with the Nation of Islam, which uh, mainstream Muslims would obviously view as a heretical and blasphemous sect and having no part with Islam whatsoever. Uh, again, a similar theology, the black man is God, the white man is the devil, um, and Islam is the original true religion. So uh, I sort of I came in contact with the Nation of Islam, which had a lot in common with what I was already familiar with. And I saw this sort mm-hmm. of as a further stepping stone uh, stepping stone or um, springboard, if you will, to deeper truth. And so I started getting curious about Islam. So I got a copy of the Quran from my um, history of religions professor at the time. I started reading it. I read it side by side with the Bible. And I'd always been told that, you know, Islam is some foreign religion um, that has nothing to do with the Judeo-Christian worldview but here I'm reading about stories of the prophets. I'm hearing about uh, Noah, Moses, David, Abraham, uh, Jesus. And so the message was uh, pretty simple, that God is one. He has no partner. And um, basically the religion preached from Adam to Muhammad was one of submission to the will of the creator, which in Arabic the term is Islam. And one who does that, one who subscribes to that is a Muslim. And so in Islamic theology, um, this is the sort of primordial religion because it predates any historical figure, any tribe, any nation, any country. It's simply the innate nature of man to submit to his creator and creation itself, even from the atoms to energy, to the trees, to the stars, to the sky, everything submits to the will of its creator. So you could say in a sense at the time, I would have said the universe had a religion. Its religion was uh, Islam. So I was just falling in line with that. So Islam started to make a lot of sense to me. Um, so I met a convert on camp uh, on campus, a, a Romanian convert who is now world famous. He has done talks all, all over the Middle East and uh, done TV appearances, written books. Uh, I don't want to say his name, but he's a very famous uh, Romanian convert to Islam. But at the time, he was just there on campus and uh, we'd, we'd meet and talk. And, you know, he would say things to me like the the prophets in the Bible, people in the Bible prayed with their face to the ground. That's how Muslims pray. Uh, people in the Bible went on pilgrimage. They fasted. Muslims do the same. So this is the biblical religion. And prima facie, on the surface level, this made a lot of sense to me. So the pieces started just lining up more and more. Uh, but the one thing that 
sort of gave me pause was the, their view of Jesus, that yes, he's the Messiah, he's of the word from God and the spirit of God. These are all titles in the Quran given to Jesus, uh, mentioned more than any other so-called prophet, uh, even Muhammad. Um, so Jesus is the, the Messiah, the word, the spirit of God. Nevertheless, he's a created being. He's just a man, and he's a prophet with the same message as all the other prophets. And um, it was told to me that Jesus was never crucified, but his likeness was placed upon somebody else who was crucified in his stead. And instead of being crucified, Jesus was just simply raised body and soul into heaven from whence he will come in the last day with an army of Muslims to defeat the Antichrist. Um, so Jesus is slated per Islam to come back at the end of time, defeat the Antichrist, and die a natural death. Um, so that's Islamic theology in a very brief nutshell, uh, which uh, jived with me and made a lot of sense. And so in the year 2006, I took my Shahada, which is the Islamic declaration of faith, that there's no God but the one God and Muhammad is his prophet. And so I took the jump from there took the plunge in 2006. So if you have any, uh, I'm going to light my cigar back up here. So if you have anything you want to add, um, brother, by all means, go right ahead. Or any questions, follow-up questions? No, I'm just, I'm just fascinated by your story. Uh, one thing that I, I'll uh, want to emphasize or point that um, that you made is when you said that you're kind of drawn in, when you were drawn into the, the Hebrew black movement, um, that one of the things that attracted you was this this idea of secret knowledge, this this Gnostic attraction. Yes, that that's a recurring theme in the history of of the church over and over and over again. A lot of these uh, heresies that have happened over the centuries mm -hmm. is because of this this prideful, you know, yearning to have that knowledge that my next door neighbor doesn't have or that my brother doesn't have, and we see it even to this day. There are right. all kinds of, uh, you know, false private, uh, private revelations, uh, you know, such as, uh, you know, Garabandal in Medjugorje, places like this. We have right. you know, Maria, Maria Divine Mercy and all these false prophets pop, popping up all over the place. It's this same, the, the devil takes our natural thirst and curiosity for spiritual things and uses it kind of against us because our pride Yes. Step way because we don't want to use the, the safety rail of the authority of the of the church to set that guardrail. Is that? A, am I? You feel like characterizing it fairly? I think that's one hundred percent accurate. That's absolutely accurate because you know the again the the thirst for knowledge. Uh, you're you're fighting against the world and the flesh, which is the temptation towards pride, and then you have our adversary, the devil, pouring gas on the fire that's already stoked. And so it makes per perfect recipe for uh, going off the rails, but thinking all the while you're in some special club or some elite group, very few are privileged to be in, or maybe you're even by yourself, you're so special. So yeah, there was times when I definitely felt like that, especially being, a, again, a Caucasian person, but be feeling accepted amongst people who moved in these sort of black power circles, um, feeling that acceptance that wow, this really must be true, and I must have something special uh, to be able to to be able to move amongst these people and them accept me and uh, make me feel mm -hmm. welcome and at home. 
uh, and I found a sort of a, a place and I started doing hip hop music myself uh, for many years. Actually, I did it. And mm-hmm. uh, this sort of Islamic infused Christological religion that I had developed, which, which I'll talk about in a, in a little while, uh, really influenced my music and my worldviews. And that sort of propelled me even further into this sort of cycle of secret knowledge, but now I had a vehicle to promote it, which made me feel even more puffed up and good about it. Um, so there was that aspect of it as well. Yep. Dustin Quick is our guest tonight. If you'd like to call in with a comment or question, the number is 515-602-9655. Again, 515-602-9655. Okay, so let's pick it up where we were before, where you kind of left it off, is that there was a great deal of Islam that made sense to you, that seemed to track with what we were taught in the in the Old Testament of what the uh, Abrahamic religion looked like. Yep. But as you said, the one thing that was nagging at you, the one thing was kind of nagging at your crawl was this image, this image of Jesus uh, yep. that that is so widely represented in the writings of Islam uh, that almost by themselves make him look a little bit larger. And yet it, it it's that uh, it's presented as no, he's just a prophet and not even as great of a prophet as, as Muhammad. So you saw a little bit of a conflict there kind of at this point, it's it, this just kind of a, 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 a soft voice in the back of your head, but it's there, right? Yeah, and so my line of thinking was if Islam was right about 99.9% of the other stuff, then they must be right about Jesus too. And so I'll kind of just, I'll swallow my pride or what I thought was pride and just submit myself. Sort of like, you know, when we have a difficulty with church teaching, we can't wrap our head around it. Uh, We submit to the authority of the magisterium, even though we don't necessarily, we might not subjectively even agree initially, um, you know, with with how we feel in our conscience uh, subjectively, but we submit ourselves to what we believe to be true. And sort of that that was sort of my perspective here was that Islam was right about so many things. I I saw it as authoritative. And so I should just submit my intellect and my desire to this view of Jesus, even though there was, again, that still small voice in the back of my mind that said something's off here, something's not right. I sort of, I decided to quench that and I, I moved ahead anyway. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a difficult time. It was exciting for me, obviously finding something new and exciting. Um, again, you know, privileged to know this truth, um, being a convert to something exotic and foreign and mysterious. And, uh, I was, I was in the in crowd. Now I had a whole new community of people and, of course, that was the positive aspect to it. The negative was obviously how it affected my family life. Uh, that that didn't go over too well. Um, my mom was crushed. My dad was obviously crushed, but more assertive about it, more vocal about it. And so he said, if you're going to do this, then you have to come to church with us on Sundays. So I, I dreaded it, but I was still living at home, and that was the rule of the house. So I had to abide by it. So I went to a Presbyterian church uh, on Sundays, and uh, I absolutely hated it. Um, I begrudged, I begrudgingly went there, but um, 
whenever, whenever I could, I would sneak Islamic materials under my bed and read the Quran, read other stuff. And uh, whenever I heard my dad coming up the stairs, I would throw it back under my bed because he didn't want he didn't even want to see the material for obvious reasons. Um, I could I could tell you now if one of my daughters grew up and that happened to me, I I don't know what I'd do. So I now I feel his pain. Now I understand. Now that I'm older, um, but yeah, it was very difficult. And I actually briefly got kicked out of the house uh, one Ramadan. Uh, because my my dad was like, well, if you're going to fast, if you're going to do this, then you can't live here. So I stayed with my aunt for a few weeks. Um, but in that few weeks I had, when I was away from home, I had a bit of a, I guess you could say a revelation. So let me backtrack a little bit. Um, in 2008, I ran across, it's funny because the Nation of Islam was a factor in my story in the beginning before I converted and after my conversion to Islam, it's still, it's still in the story, and it's still, I, I believe now, placed there providentially by by our Lord. Um, but I ran across this Nation of Islam scholar who did his PhD at the University of Michigan, and his PhD thesis was just like the anthropomorphic theophanies in the Hebrew Bible, in which God appears as a man. Um, contra-Islamic dogma that you hear from a lot of pop apologists, uh, you can find the same tradition in Islam where God appears to Muhammad in the form of a young man between the ages of 30 and 33 and actually touched Muhammad's chest to where he felt the coolness of God's fingertips. There's a whole hadith or tradition that describes uh, this encounter. And so that was interesting to me because I had, I had always been taught that you're not to compare God to anything in creation. He's totally unlike anything whatsoever. Uh, there's a verse in the Quran, um, chapter 42, verse 11, that says, Laysa kamithahishe, there's nothing like him. Uh, so that was, you know, that was my worldview. But then coming coming across this knowledge of, oh my goodness, in the formative period of his Islamic orthodoxy, you have, uh, these traditions of Adam being made in God's image and God appearing to Muhammad in the form of, of a man in the same way that the prophets encountered God in the Hebrew Bible in these theophanies. So the fruit of that was now I'm starting to get a greater love for the Hebrew Bible, whereas I had been taught in Islam that the Bible was corrupted, obviously, and so Islam and the Quran came as a corrective as the final revelation. But now I'm I'm falling more and more in love with the with the scriptures, not not at the New Testament at this point, but I was just I was I would dig into those uh, theophany narratives in the Bible and the Old Testament and just like get super excited, you know Genesis 18 being one where uh, the Lord appears with two of his his angels um, mm -hmm. and uh, talks to Abraham and sits down in the cool of the day under the oak of Mamre and and stuff like this. So I'm getting super excited about the Bible again. Um, and I'm trying now to har harmonize more and more Islamic tradition with the Bible, whereas before I kind of shoved that off to the side and just kind of focused on Islamic tradition. Um, and, you know, Islamic tradition's view of the previous scriptures is that where it agrees with Islam and Islamic theology, those uh, aspects of the Bible were kept pure and kept intact, but where things diverge from Islam, that was the error of the either the Israelites or the Christian later on the Christians who corrupted the scriptures. 
Uh, and so again, Islam and the Quran came as the final uh, revelation and corrective of what came before it. But I'm just falling more and more in love with the Bible at this point. So that was uh, that was two years after my conversion, where I started encountering uh, this sort of body of knowledge and this trajectory. So I'm I'm not seeing it quite yet, but I'm 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 starting to shift a little bit theologically, and w- w- without me even realizing it at the time, this is how subtle God is and how subtle the Holy Spirit is. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is one of the things that started to draw me deeper into the love of the Bible, which I had sort of shunned uh, before that and would only use it to beat Christians over the head with. Um, but now I'm starting to love it more. Um, yeah, and that was 2008. Then um, in 2009, excuse me, I uh, I met an acquaintance or friend of this Nation of Islam scholar we connected online. This is back in the days of MySpace. So uh, pretty ancient when we're talking about the Internet. But we connected on MySpace. We started talking. Uh, we had a common interest in these theophany narratives and the theophany narrative in Islam, uh, which a lot of Orthodox Muslims rejected and saw as, as a weak or fabricated tradition. But uh, that didn't bother us. We just bonded over this. And... Um, one day I said, can you believe, I, I was talking to the brother and I said, can you believe that Christians actually believe that God physically became a man? Can, like, isn't that ridiculous? And that's when he dropped the bomb on me. And he said, you know when, you know when the man appeared to Muhammad? You know when God appeared to Muhammad? He said, well, I believe that was the divine Christ. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. This guy is a Muslim. He believes in Islam, but he's now telling me that Christ is divine and he appeared to Muhammad. And then the more I talk to him, um, the more I realize that he believed that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He died for our sins. He rose and ascended into heaven and he's the savior of the world, but he still considered himself to be Muslim. And uh, that just, I, I crawled in the, I remember when he, when he dropped this on me, I was in my room and I crawled up in the fetal position because here I am running away from Christ. And here he is for the first time in my life. Like I could just feel him in the room with me. And, uh, I was so overcome by his presence and my sinfulness, his holiness, uh, me realizing that he is my savior. He did die for my sins. He became incarnate. Uh, and it just, I had, for the first time in my life, I had a real encounter with Christ, even though I grew up a Christian. I didn't really encounter Christ in this powerful way before. So this this was a game changer. Um, and that was 2009. So this was right around the time that I was sort of kicked out of my parents' house for a little while. And I came, when I came back home, um, my I told this to my dad, and my dad was floored, and he was he was over the moon elated, uh, obviously not at the fact that I still considered myself uh, Muslim or whatever, but just the fact that I had encountered Christ and I believed in the New Testament and I was walking with, starting to walk with Christ again or for the first time in my life. And so he was super excited about that, as was I. So now I went back to church at this time willingly. And uh, I, I sat with the pastor for a couple hours one day and I just I told him my theological leanings and my beliefs. And I said, you know, I do believe in the New Testament. I do believe 
um, what Christians believe about Christ, but I also believe that Islam or the Quran came as the final revelation, as a warning to mankind, but it doesn't contradict the Old and New Testaments. Rather, it was Muslims for 1,400 years who misunderstood their own religion and their own sacred texts, and they weren't interpreting it correctly, but the mm-hmm. correct interpretation was a Christological lens through which the Quranic material and Hadith are supposed to be interpreted and read. And so I was sort of following the cue of my friend that I had met. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like my spiritual father at the time. I basically ate up everything that he said. And um, I got introduced also to Protestant speakers and pastors during this time, like Charles Stanley Chuck Swindoll, uh, Paul Washer, John mm-hmm. MacArthur. So I started listening to these guys as well. And uh, yeah, I'm just I, I'm in love with Christ. I'm 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 serving at my church. I started cleaning the washrooms, and then I was editing the video for Sunday sermons. I was helping out with the slides on Sunday sermons for worship, and I, any way that I could be involved and serve God's people and be the hands and feet of Christ, I was absolutely overjoyed to do so. So I was back at the church and I was actively a member, volunteering, even though I had a sort of Christological Islamic faith, the pastor still allowed me to be there and to be an active member in the church. And uh, he was very gracious and kind. He he is to this day a wonderful man and a humble soul. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came to find out later once, once I finally dropped Islam that he said, you know, I, I was patient with you because I knew you'd come around. I knew you'd come to your senses one day. So I kind of just let that part slide. So yeah, I I get why he did that. I get why he was gentle with me and he was right. I eventually did come around and I did shake off Islam, but the whole reason um, that I had this and I kept this view for about three years was that I wasn't quite ready um, to let go of Islam. So and because I had no magisterium, I had no authority to tell me how to interpret scripture. I could basically use the sola scriptura approach and say, I can make the Bible fit the Quran and vice versa. And nobody's, nobody has the authority to tell me otherwise because the spirit is leading me. I don't have any external mm-hmm. authority to tell me otherwise. Right. So I was pretty content with that. But after a while, it almost becomes like a cognitive dissonance, right? Yeah. You, you You get to the point where the two, Views are too far afield to reckon to, to reconcile. Uh, correct. That's exactly it. Um, so what happened was okay. So by this time, I'm, you know how Protestants, um, some some anyway, they'll they'll use the axiom I'm free in Christ or I have freedom in Christ, and they'll take that to mean I'm free from religion. It's not about laws. It's not about rituals. It's about relationship. So I kind of took that line, and um, I dropped the Islamic rituals. And I, and I said to myself, it's not necessary to pray five times a day in a prescribed manner. It's not necessary to fast for 40 days during a certain month and, and all of that. Um, I can do all these things in the spirit, and I'm free in Christ to have uh, a living, breathing, uh, vivacious relationship with God, however the Spirit moves me, uh, ritual or not. So I started to distance myself more and more from the Islamic community. I attended mosque very, very, very seldom. 
and I just kind of kept to myself. I was more active at church than anything. But I started sort of, you know, dropping the formalities of Islam. So that was sort of the first stage. But then I came to uh, an impasse at, believe it or not, the issue of communion. This is what made me break from Islam. Now, at the time, uh, I had a very obviously symbolic view of the Lord's Supper. It was simply bread and wine that represented Christ's sacrifice and calls it to mind. And we're to honor that and to remember that. And um, but something something hit me, and that something was in Islam, drinking wine or alcohol is a grave sin that could lead you to hellfire. But yet, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, commanding bread and wine to be consumed perpetually, and Paul says this is to be done until the second coming. So who do I listen to? Do I listen to God incarnate, who commands this as a perpetual ordinance, or do I listen to a so-called prophet who came six, seven hundred years later and says, if I partake in such a thing, I could go, I could be among the people of hellfire. So when I put it like that, I was at a quite a literal crossroads and I said, the choice is clear. I'm, I'm going with Christ. There's no, there's no reconciling this anymore. And so 2014 is when I made a formal break uh, with Islam and went back to my Protestant roots specifically uh, five-point Calvinism. Uh, I really was, felt the draw to Calvinism, uh, doctrines like total depravity, limited atonement. Again, that whole, um, that whole thing of I'm, I'm, I must be one of the elect. I must be mm-hmm. one of the chosen. I must be one yep. of the special ones, right? There's that gnosis again and that pride kicking yeah. in. Um, kind of almost like the child approach. <laughs> Uh, yeah. God loves me better than you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And uh I was I was I did I wasn't diagnosed with any mental health issues at the time, but now I understand looking back why I uh gravitated so heavily towards total depravity. That was actually the doctrine that made me fall in love with Calvinism was I had such a low opinion of myself. So to hear somebody say, You're a dirt, you're a worm God hates you. God hates the sinner. Um, you know, I, I'm like, yeah, that's 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 true. That's how I feel about myself. So it must be true. And I really took hold of Calvinism pretty hard. And uh, you know, the whole thing about limited atonement being of the elect. Christ only died for for a select few, not for the whole world. And sort of all that kind of bundled together. But total depravity is what really snagged me and hooked me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, 2014, I broke with Islam, went back to Protestantism, specifically Calvinism. And, uh, yeah, I'm just going to relight my cigar if you don't mind. And if you want to have, have any initial or uh, not initial, but, uh, follow up thoughts or comments, uh, oh, go right ahead. I mean, there's so much to unpack here. It's just such a, a, a fascinating journey that you have gone from baptized Catholic to basically nominal Protestantism uh, into um, mainstream Islam to nation of Islam, Islam. (laughs) Now you've gone back into uh, Christianity, but now you're at, now you're at uh, Calvinism. Uh, So you've got quite a lot of turns and winds in this, in this road of yours. Um, I gotta believe, I gotta believe that 
the biggest difficulty, or at least one of the biggest difficulties you have in Calvinism, not that I want to guess your story ahead, ahead, uh, but this idea of um, of uh, unqualified election, mm. uh, this this idea that 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 basically makes it makes a God uh, like a little boy with a bag of plastic soldiers. And he takes one of them and puts him in his toy box, and he takes the other one and throws it in the fireplace. And it's just random. It's just there's yeah. absolutely nothing that you can do to better or worsen fate. That had to have been that. I got to believe that was part of the road out of Calvinism. Am, am I correct? Well, you know, it certainly gave me a lot of anxiety because, you know, if, if it's funny because for purporting once saved always saved and eternal security you're constantly fruit inspecting to see whether or not you're bearing fruits and a life worthy of repentance which in turn would tell you whether you're elect or not but am i going to fall away one day which will prove that i was never saved to begin with and so there's this endless cycle of anxiety and fruit inspection going on uh, so that definitely was not appealing but that wasn't what actually drove me out of Protestantism and Calvinism specifically. Um, mm -hmm. What did it was, uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, um, I thought I ran across a video on the early church, but it was done by a Calvinist and he was doing quote minds of the church fathers showing how they believed in each one of the five points of Calvinism. So I didn't care much about the early church at this point. I didn't know much about it at all, but I'm like, hey, it's a bonus. If the early church was Calvinist, then, hey, that's, you know, all the better. That's great. So it just sort of made me more firm in my beliefs and more staunch. Oh, but no. Then oh, no. I realized I see, something. I see where this is going. I yep. see where this is going. So you decided to start reading the early church fathers to confirm what you were hearing about what they believed. And yep. you were not prepared for what you found, were you? <laughs> no, no, I, I wasn't. I had a, a friend who I'd been going to Bible studies with, and he was uh, born and raised a Catholic and had a quote-unquote born-again experience where he left for Protestantism. And him and I used to go to you know Bible studies together and church together on occasion. And I remember him messaging me one day, one evening, saying, you know, I'm, I'm looking back into my Catholic roots you got to check out this website called Catholic Answers, and you have to watch this debate between uh, Tim Staples and James White on Sola Scriptura. And, of course, James White was one of my heroes back then. Mm. So I freaked out on my friend, um, obviously. I said, you know, what are you doing? You've, you've apostatized. You've lost the faith. You've uh, embraced another gospel. This is exactly what St. Paul, I wouldn't have said St. Paul, but Paul back then uh warned against he warned the galatians about accepting another gospel even if even if it be from an angel from heaven and what are you doing you're crazy but something told me you know what i'm going to watch this debate anyway but i know who's going to win so it doesn't matter mm -hmm. so i'm watching this tim stables guy and i i knew nothing about catholics except for what i learned from anti-catholic protestants so here's this guy talking about He's quoting scripture like my grandmother would. He's talking about his love of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the real presence in the Eucharist, the papacy, ecumenical councils, all this stuff. I'm like, 
wow, like this is what has been under my nose the whole time. This is what early Christianity was. You could you could believe all that and you could still be a lover and follower of Jesus Christ, just like, you know, the people that I had already known, but you can go even deeper. And I, that shook me to the core. So, of course, mm-hmm. um, I was, uh, for the next little while, I would stay up all night till 3, 4 in the morning on Catholic Answers forums, just scouring any topic I could find, reading threads, uh, discussion threads, and literally sweating. So I'm getting to the point where I'm saying, because the evidence is mounting for me. And one of the things that I've always prided myself on doing by God's grace is wherever I felt the evidence led, that's where I would go. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I hadn't gone through each stage of my journey that I had, I wouldn't have ended up here. So it was all a golden thread in the end. Um, But I remember saying to God, I said, you know, Lord, I'll be anything, but don't make me become Catholic. Because I had adopted the craziest conspiracy theories about the church that you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was beyond the horror of Babylon. I mean, I believe the Catholic <laughs> Church was responsible for uh, genetically modified food. Um, they were in league with Monsanto. Uh, they were behind UFOs. Um, they sacrificed uh, to Lucifer under the catacombs, they sacrificed babies to Lucifer. Just the craziest thing. So you got to understand, this is what I thought Catholicism was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want it to be associated with that, obviously. But the more I read, the more I studied, the more I prayed and sought God, um, I had to had to make the jump. And so, uh, and I got married uh, in 2014 as well. So this is all happening around the same time. So I met my wife in 2013. We dated for three months and got married in February of 2014. So when she met me, I was still quote unquote, Christocentric Muslim. And she accepted this about me just like my pastor had, because she saw my genuine love for Christ. And I wouldn't really talk about Islam much with her anyway. Um, But it used to drive me crazy because I would try to, you know, tell her these, uh, theological things that I had come up with and I could gain an audience with some people at least. I mean, they might not accept what I was saying, but they could say, yeah, I could see how you might come to understand this and it's not too crazy and so on. And that kind of made me feel validated. But my wife was just, you know, simple faith, but rock solid and just said, no, you're wrong. That's crazy. You can't believe that. And it used to drive me nuts. And so, um, that's when my my wife met me when I was still on that stage. In 2014, uh, when we got married, I was a Calvinist. So 2014, um, that same year, uh, at the end of 2014, going into 2015, 2014 is when I actually made the act of faith, that I believed all that the Catholic Church taught to be revealed by God. I, I made that profession to myself before God. And I came out and told my wife that I think I needed to become Catholic. And she said she wanted to divorce me um, because, you know, I'd become a stranger to her. She never married a Catholic. This is not who I am. What am I doing? I'm breaking apart this family. And uh, that was a really tough time. And so Mm -hmm. the pastor I had at the time said, look, you just need to be quiet. Stop with the apologetics. Stop hitting her over the head with books and articles and stuff like that and just show her the faith through your love and be patient maybe she'll come around so uh one night 
when I wasn't expecting it, she uh, brought up the issue of the canon and said, you know, I, I remember you saying somewhere along the line that Protestants remove books from the Old Testament. Who gave them the authority to do that? How do we know the books in the Bible are even supposed to be there in the first place? And so that's when the light started to dawn for her and we started to have civil conversations and open conversations. And then 2015 Easter vigil is when we both formally entered the church. So, uh, yeah, I've been a Catholic, uh, since then. And it's funny because, you know, I, yeah, I went through all these twists and turns, but I'm literally back where I started full circle in the church of my Mm -hmm. baptism. And I came full circle by the grace of God alone. Nothing that I could merit. That's for sure. Yeah, that's that's the way it works. <laughs> God's God's amazing grace. So I want to ask you two questions. Yeah. I, I want to ask you what doctrine, if you had if you had to pick one, mm-hmm. was was the clincher, the one that put you over the tripping point. You said, okay, I got to do this. I can't go back. And the flip side of that, which doctrine gave you the most difficulty? Which one was the hardest? barrier for you to get over i would say the ones that were easiest to accept or that were most compelling uh were the eucharist and the authority of the magisterium and the papacy um i i saw those as pretty compelling pretty easy to accept um as far as difficulties i would say in theory i could have accepted the communion of saints but getting down to actually praying the rosary for the first time excuse me was quite an a, quite a daunting task and i you know i remember saying to god if i'm committing idolatry please forgive me that's not my intention lord you know that and i just had to force myself to offer my first uh prayers to mary and that was pretty tough so i would say uh the communion of saints in practice was difficult for me but the papacy and the eucharist were easy to accept conceptually you know your answer seems logical to me it really does and i'll tell you why because to me the second uh, let me deal with the second part here mm. you're you're still in the back of your mind dealing with that 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 voice that hesitation that says that god is so unapproachable that God is so removed yeah. from us that uh, this idea of God using uh, a, a hierarchy, working through created beings on the way up and working through created beings on the way down is so removed from that ideology. It had to have been difficult for you to get your, to get your mind around. Uh, yeah. But as, yeah. but as far as the first part, the reason why those things came together, I think, is because the foundation for those is so clear and uh, visible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, whereas the communion of saints, you got it's there, but you got to dig a little, little bit deeper. You got to kind of go into the Book of Revelation to understand yeah. that. So, is is that a, a fair representation of of why those things fell into place like that? It's funny, um, you know, it's our first time talking, but it seems like you know me so well and you're, pr- you're pretty good at psychoanalyzing me. I would say that's absolutely correct. Yeah, well, like I said, it seems like we're brothers of a different mother. Uh, we just, it does, a lot it of things, seem. 
a lot of the things that you said have been, you know are I've kind of tracked with I've walked these same steps in my spiritual journey even though I I am a cradle catholic but yeah. you know I I fell into into nominal you know quite a few times it it hasn't been a, it hasn't been a straight line uh for me um I never did fall into protestantism and right and and the reason why I never did fall into Protestantism is because even reading the Bible as a young man, I, I just could not reconcile this idea of faith alone with what I read in the scriptures. Just yeah. I mean the the gospel of Matthew, I just could not make the leap. Now they were it wasn't that I didn't have things with Catholicism that were difficult, that I had sure. difficulty in working through. I I could not read Matthew 3, Matthew 5, Matthew 7, Matthew 25 and reconcile that with okay all you got to do is believe that's it you're in. Uh it that you know the 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 two were just a, a blatant contradiction uh for me but I did have I did have you know some difficulties all the way uh, along the way. It's interesting sure. though the one the one stumbling block uh you said the communion of saints most yeah, of the people practice, most of yeah. the people I talk to most of the people I talk to point at one particular saint they had difficulty with right and you know who I'm talking about okay absolutely yeah they they have they just have lots of problems with our blessed mother and there's all kinds of catholic doctrines and catholic beliefs that I had difficulty with that I had even when I believed them when I and when I was uh, in that sense of obedience, you know, uh, obedient to the to the church magisterium. This is okay. The church teaches it, so it must be true. But what asked to explain it, I, I couldn't. There were many things like that, but the idea of the intercession of our Blessed Lady is something that just always made sense to me. And yeah. it's I've always been fascinated with people who had difficulty with that. Um, and, and I had a person one time, a friend of mine one time confronted me and he said, they said, I just want to ask you a straight question. He said, I want to ask you, why do you, why do you pray to Mary? I said, I said, oh, I, I said, I guess you see that as a, uh, a sense of worship, right? And he said, well, yeah. I said, okay. I said, I'm going to answer you two ways. Here's how I'm going to answer you. I said, the first thing is what must I do to be saved? And he said, well, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I said, right, Lord and Savior, not just Savior only, right? Right. <laughs> he, has, he has to be Lord in my life. It's a package deal. Yeah. I said, I said, but what, what if I just accepted that he's a really nice guy that said a bunch of wonderful things? Is that good enough? And he said, well, no. I said, well, why not? He said, well, you have to accept him for who he is. I said, oh, really? I said, who is that? He said, well, he's God. I said, he is? Jesus is God? And he said, well, yeah. I said, Jim, are you telling me that in order to worship Jesus Christ, I have to assent to his divinity? Is that what you're telling me? And he said, well, yeah. I said, interesting. I said, because I don't assent to Mary's divinity, and you just accuse me of worshiping her. I like that. Double, I like that. Why the double standards? So that was the first right. part. The second part was when I said, open up your own King James Bible, and we'll go to 1 Kings chapter 2. And now here we have a scene where Adonijah, the son of the queen, is petitioning the queen for a favor from the king 
who is also the son of the queen. All right. right. That's that that's that whole my mother and my brothers and my sisters <laughs> who do the will yeah. of God. That that whole thing there. And 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 I said, now look at the language. Adonijah says, Pray ye, ask the king. Pray ye. I said, Is Adonijah worshiping his mother? No. So when the queen goes in to see the king, the king bows down to her. I said, is he worshiping his mother? No. And then she says, and, and then the king puts her on a throne at his right hand. Okay. Yeah. So he's so he's throwing all he's listening to all this. And he's like, well, he said, John, what does all this have to do with Mary? I said, I'm getting to that. Getting yeah. I said, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, what does he say to her? He said, well, she's going to have a son. Yes, exactly. And what does he say about that son? Well, his her son is going to be the son of God. I said, correct. What else does he say? He said, well, I don't know. What else does he say? I says, and your son will be given the throne of his father, David. He said, okay. I said, well, that means that David's a Davidic king. He said, okay. I said, well, then who's the queen mother? His right. jaw dropped to the floor. He couldn't, he, he, he couldn't, he couldn't answer that. So is, is he it, Catholic today? Not, not yet. He hasn't made not yet. yet. I'm working on him. I'm working <laughs> on him. I've made, I've made progress, but, but it's just, it's this whole notion. The light comes on when you see, okay, that story that we're reading in the old Testament it isn't there just to take up page space. It's there. It's a typology. It's there to teach us a, a, a lesson, and this is what we were talking about. And you saw these themes over and over again, like with Melchizedek and and uh, and, and all of these themes. And what a fascinating journey that that you've taken. And now, how blessed you are that you've taken this this journey with with you and and your wife. And you can kind of identify with people whose family members have, have kind of gone the other way, and you can kind of identify with their with their with their pain and their suffering. People who have lost yeah. their faith. What right. would you say? What would you say to them? Well, I would say that um, Look, whatever your experiences are, whatever your hurts are, if you were hurt or abused, um, I'm so sorry. There's no excuse for that. You know, sometimes it's deeper than uh, theological quibbles. Sometimes it's very personal. And to those people, it's really, it, it depends where they're at. No matter what you say, they might not be convinced because they're just so hurt. Uh, but mm-hmm. if they're on a, on a different sort of, spectrum and they're looking for theological truth you could just say you know look god set up creation as a temple he's built the tabernacle as a microcosm of the creation which is a temple he built the temple as a microcosm of creation um he set up a davidic monarchy with a queen mother with a royal steward who was not only who did not only have um, administrative functions, but he also had a priestly role. He opened and shut, you know, the house of God. He had this care of over the sacred vessels of the temple. 
the queen mother sat at the king's right hand. Um, you know, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, you had the bread of the presence. You had the, in- the altar of incense. You had the menorah. Uh, you had the whole holy oil of anointing. All these things are restored. This is why to the first Christians, things made sense so quickly is because they were drawing on that temple tradition, that temple mm. theology that sort of had become lost in the era of the second temple. Because in the second temple, the Holy of Holies was empty. The second temple was a shadow of the first. So Jesus and the apostles and their successors were saying, this is what we're restoring, the Davidic monarchy, we're restoring the temple. And so if you want the God-ordained, God-breathed, original religion of the Bible, this is where it's at in its fullness. Mm-hmm. The, the closest you're going to get is orthodoxy. But orthodoxy is missing Again, that fundamental aspect of the Davidic kingdom, which is the royal steward or the master of the palace, which is in the person of St. Peter and uh, goes on in his successors. And this is missing in orthodoxy. So, again, if you want all the elements uh, of the biblical religion in their fullness, in their fulfillment, you can look no further than the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so to them, I would Mm -hmm. say, come home, swim the Tiber. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right, um, and I think something you said just a minute ago just uh, bears uh, repeating, and I want to emphasize what you said before. So do you know what the name of our apostle uh, means, the four persons? Do you know what that's about? Uh, no, tell me. Okay. So around 2006, which is – where you were involved in 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 your journey yeah uh, my 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 family was going to hell and i'll just you know be very very clear about it we had to send a family member to prison for 20 years oh my goodness i'm so sorry we we were going through an absolute horror and the question arose as to whether my oldest daughter who was 19 at the time would be required to testify against this monster. Mm. And I saw how the prospect of sitting in a in a courtroom and testifying, the fear of that was was it was basically making her come apart at the seams. It really was. Yeah, I can't even can't even imagine. Yeah. So I went to my counselor who was uh uh Recommended to us by Catholic Charities, I said, Noni, what do I do? What do I do? I'm powerless here. You know, she's 19 years old. Uh, she's of legal age. She wants to press forward with this trial. I have to stop this. I, I can't let that defense attorney will rip her to shreds. I have to. What can I do? I have to stop this. And she looks at me and she says, yeah, you're right, John. You have to stop this. Whatever you whatever you have to do, anything you have to do, you have to stop this. I said, Noni, there's nothing I can do. She's 19 years old. Yeah. You, you know, and she told me something that I will never forget as long as I live. She said, John, physically, she's 19 years old. Okay? She says – Mentally, your daughter is 30, okay? She's a brilliant kid, brilliant kid. Right. Okay? 
spiritually, she needs work. She needs work spiritually. Um, emotionally, she's 10 years old. She's the mm. same shattered kid that she was when these crimes took place. She said, John, each person is four persons. And those four persons also happen to be have to be healthy. The four persons operate independently, but the four persons operate in communion with each other. And if one of them is not healthy, it's going to affect the other three. And that's the physical person, the mental person, the emotional person, and the spiritual person. Oh, wow. That's so profound. So I chewed on this and chewed on this and chewed on this for a while. And one day, on a whim... I decided I was going to read the scriptures. You ever do that? Ever open the Bible to wherever it opens up to? Yep. Okay. I did that, (laughs) and it opened up to Mark chapter 12 that told me that the greatest commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and thy whole mind and thy whole soul and thy whole strength. Boom. (laughs) Yeah. Boom. It was right there in the Gospels. Whole heart, whole mind, whole soul, and whole strength. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because you hit it, the nail on the head, just a few minutes ago. When you have a person that is emotionally traumatized, and that's what she is. She's emotionally traumatized. She's angry at God. Yep. Where were you? Why did these horrible things have to happen to me and my family? Where were you? That's where she's at. And that emotional trauma, that emotionally hurt person is holding the other three persons down and preventing them from being able to heal. And when you understand that, and we have two counselors that are regulars here on the four persons, they have regular shows You have to understand that element. You have to understand the element of the emotional person. You have to understand the element of the spiritual person or anything that you try to do with medication or therapy or counseling to try to heal the mental person and the physical person is of no avail. You cannot ignore the spiritual person and the emotional person. You have to work to help them be healthy too. And it takes time and it takes prayer and it takes sacrifice and it's a painful process. So what I would say to that person that's estranged from the faith is I would say, okay, I understand that you've suffered. I understand that you've gone through, uh, you know, you've gone through pain. You've gone through suffering. The same God that you thought abandoned you never did. Because when I asked my pastor about this, because all of this happened on the heels of us losing a child. These crimes happened after we lost a child, and it was by a person who said he was going to help us get it back on our feet after losing a child. And his way of helping us get back on our feet was to commit all these atrocities, okay? Wow. Yeah. So it, it's horrible stuff to go through. So I asked my pastor, where was God? Where was he in the middle of all this? He straightened the eyes, Dustin, and he said, I'm going to ask you one question. Look at what you've been through. Look at what your family have been been through. Look me in the eyes and tell me that you got through all that under your own strength. Yeah. And I said, there's no way. (laughs) There's no way. Right. He, He said, that's where he was. That's where he was, right in the midst of it. 
And that is the beauty of our sacred faith. The beauty of our sacred faith is that God can take any atrocity. Let's, let's face it. The world is a horrible place filled with horrible people. Yeah. Um, but the worst the devil can throw at us, God can use for our salvation and for the salvation of, 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 of others. And we kind of opened the show by talking about this, beating the, the devil in the face with his own mallet. And eventually, eventually, I believe the Holy Spirit is, is going to reach them and is going to turn them. Our job is to stand back. And, and the best explanation I ever heard anybody give me, Dustin, is he said, suppose one of your kids was really, really badly injured. And you rushed him to the emergency room. And you're hovering over your kid while the doctors are frantically working on your kid, trying to save your kid's life. And you're like, is my kid going to be okay? Is my kid going to be okay? Is my kid going to be okay? Somebody is going to grab you and restrain you, not because you don't care about your kid, not because they believe you don't care about your kid, because they're trying to save your kid and you're getting in the way. Mm. And I said, so what do you mean? What do you mean? He looks me straight in the eye. He said, John. The divine physician is trying to save your kids. Get out of the way. Let the divine physician do his work. And I've kind of adopted that as my as my plan, my strategy, to leave it in faith. Pray, make sacrifices, go to adoration. We can offer these people up, and we have to have that faith of a St. Monica, of, of somebody like that, that... Yeah. They're in the hands of the master, and he's not going to let us down. Hey, man, what a beautiful testimony. Yeah, and it's, you know, what you said about the, the, the four persons being in harmony, It's uh, that really resonates, too, with me, because I have about four diagnosed mental illnesses and uh, started around 2015. And, you know, going to therapy and taking medications, all of which has helped me tremendously. But, you know, one of the things that a great blessing is my psychologist is actually a devout Catholic. Mm-hmm. So that, that's rare, number one. That's rare. Mm-hmm. Number two, not one of our sessions goes by that he does not mention our Lord and the faith and how many times he's recommended that I offer up my suffering for souls in purgatory. Like, this is how my psychologist talks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely and, amazing. And and you know what's amazing, Dustin? And and the the two psychologists, counselors who are regulars that have a regular program, okay, Tuesdays and Thursday nights here on the four persons, they they do their counseling shows. They have gone into great detail on that. They've gone into great detail about that. Here's the funny thing about it. That is the anomaly today in the counseling and psychiatric profession. Yeah. But it's but it's not how it used to be. Right. The connection, the connection, the fundamental spiritual element of who a human being is, is something that was classically and always understood. It's only in recent history, maybe over the last, really since Sigmund Freud, that we started to divert from that. That we started to get into this, uh, this view that we're just, you know, we're just mindless drones. We're just uh, composites of chemical reactions and physical urges. Right. Uh, and if you can't recognize what a human being is, then you can't help that person. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. and we have things that that 
we have things that fall into mental illness, okay? And I, I don't want to sound like I'm not compassionate for mental illness because let me tell you something. I lost two brothers in 2015, two months apart, and they both suffered by uh, under various forms of, of mental illness. My my brother Mike was, was a full-blown schizophrenic. He, yeah. had com- he had conversations with people that were not there. And and I don't say that in a pejorative sense. Any, it was heart wrenching. It was painful. It was agonizing to watch. Can't imagine. Um, yeah, I'm so sorry. But he was a devout, devout Catholic. He died with his rosary in his hand. Wow! Praise God. Uh, yeah. Um, so. Wow. But 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 the fact of the matter is, there are things that that can be quantified to mental illness, and then there are things that are not mental illness at all. There are things that are spiritual illness. Sometimes we have to be very, very careful for the wounds that we inflict on ourselves through our own pride, our own avarice, our own envy and and anger and wrath and, and all these things that are part of the human condition. There are a lot of counselors today. There are a lot of really good counselors, and it sounds like you got one of the good ones. But, Dustin, there's some bad ones out there, too. There's some bad ones out there, too, that are really – Nothing more than 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 predators because they prey on the weakness of people for their own hmm. profit. Um, the, 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 here's the difference, okay? The difference is between a good counselor and a bad counselor is this: the good counselor is trying to give you the tools to help you to overcome. Right. The bad counselor is giving you the excuses as to why you cannot overcome. So nice, yeah, nice in, distinction. In, in in essence, what that person is doing is is uh, paralyzing you. Yeah, they're 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 absolutely paralyzing you. And and um, um, you, you know, if you, if you got a broken leg, okay, yeah, take this medicine for the pain, but get the broken leg fixed too. <laughs> you know that's yeah. You, you know, and and uh, and it seems like. There's a lot of people in the in the in the counseling profession, and correct me if you think I'm wrong if I'm going off on the rails here, but there's a lot of people in the in the, in the uh, counseling profession that just want to give you enough pain so you don't think about the broken leg. Yeah, no, I uh, agree. A lot of it's you know, and not that there's anything wrong with medication; it can be very helpful. But sometimes all people want to do is just push pills, and they don't get to the root of the issues. I mean, those are just you know, those can just effectively act as band-aids sometimes and they mask the deeper issues, but you have to get to the root of your woundedness. And sometimes right. it's mental, sometimes it's emotional, and sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's physical. And all these yeah. things work, work in tandem and right. The, all, uh, the, all, the effective all, all counselor is going to, yeah, the, the effective <laughs> these... counselor is going to address all of those aspects, all those persons, right? Yeah, all of those persons are holding hands with each other in harmony, working together. That's how this whole this whole process works. Um, and they, you know, there are a lot of counselors out there where their their first impulse is to is to you know, oh, you you got a problem with someone in your family, cut them out of your life. Right. That's their first impulse. Uh, to me, that's a drastic, absolutely drastic, last resort step. Uh, but yeah, for some people. Yeah, for some people, it's, it's it's this person is toxic, that person is toxic. Um, I, I call it the the um, I call it the syndrome of feeding the alligator. Okay, and and yeah. you're on a desert island, 
okay? And you feed all of the other persons to the alligator one by one. Well, after a while, you run out of people to feed to the alligator, and the alligator comes to you, okay? And that's what this idea of cutting people out of your life. Eventually, you run out of people to cut out of your life, and now you're uh, you're alone and isolated in, in, in the world. And this is this 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 idea that uh, victims and villains and and uh, you know mental illness is a real thing, and and certainly I don't understand how you could go through the world right now without without having some kind of uh, Issues of of depression and anxiety and and all these other things, I I don't, I don't understand how you could you could I mean when you turn on the news, turn on the news yeah. and, and 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 you're you know you're uh, and we talk about a lot of these issues on this program and on this network and these are issues that we that we that we try to um, address and 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 we try to avoid. One of the you know the apostle that I just left uh, because they you know were going off the rails. One of the things that they did was everything is political, and mm. if you're you you gotta check every box on the appropriate side of the political aisle. Well, I'm sorry, neither party has it has it all right. Yeah, you that's can right. Say, you can say that one's right more than the other. Okay, maybe that's true. Okay. But a broken clock is right twice a day, okay? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there are issues in, in which we need to work together. There are issues that we need to – we need to come to a solution on these school shootings. Something has to happen. Sure, sure. It has to be stopped. Uh, and, and yet we got uh, – you know, you got one side that wants to blame only the gun. And then you got the other side that wants to blame everything but the gun. Okay, yep. well, you have a maniac using a high-velocity rapid-fire weapon. Let's see what we can do to, to stop that scenario from happening, to stop the maniac from being able to walk into the school unconfronted. Uh, and and to, why don't we have security barriers up? But, and, and meanwhile, you got people on both sides of the aisle Screaming at each other, telling each other their side is wrong, and meanwhile the children are still being killed. Uh, yeah. To me, that it's, it's unconscionable that we're not taking the immediate emergency actions that we need to do. I, I go to work. I've got to badge in and sign in, and <laughs> you know, yeah. code yep. code in ten different ways to Sunday to get where I need to go. I got a badge to get on the floor. I got a badge to get on the elevator. I got a badge to get into into my office space. Uh, and yet you can walk into a school with an AR-15 and just start shooting kids. It's yeah, a very mind-boggling. It, it, and, and it's, and it, it's, it's sickening. And yet, and, and, and yet we have to be very, very careful not to fall into despair over this, over to say, yeah. well, Wring our hands and say it's hopeless. It's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. The world is not hopeless because even the even the suffering and the and the and the horror of what we're witnessing in the world uh, can be turned into good. Uh, anybody doesn't anybody doesn't believe that. Let's go back to the Christmas story because the same week, the same week, we commemorate the slaughter of the innocents. So there you had. 
You had tragedy right in the middle of the of the greatest joy the world has ever known, the light, great light that that uh, you know appeared in the darkness. So I'm sorry for going on and on and on and rambling on and on and on, but uh, it just seems like we're we're on the same level on so many things. Yeah, it does seem that way, and I I really appreciate these insights, and I, I think you know this stuff needs to be talked about more and brought in the open. So I'm glad that you're doing that. And the other guys on on your uh, program are doing that. That's it needs to be done. Somebody has to do it, and I'm glad that somebody is. So before I let you go, um, I, I just want you to give me give me a couple of your favorite saints and a couple of your favorite books. I'd just be be interested in hearing that, uh, and then we'll wrap this up. Yeah, sure. So favorite saint, uh, big surprise is the uh, Queen Mother of the New Davidic Kingdom. Uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to I used to pray a 50 decade rosary every day. Uh, I was I was so in love with our Blessed, and I still am. But uh, life circumstances has re- relegated me to one one set of mysteries a day, so I've kind of fallen off the wagon there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely, the Blessed Mother has been a huge, huge uh, person in my life. Um, I don't know where I'd be without the da- without the daily rosary, without her intercession, without her protecting veil and maternal care. Uh, so definitely her. Um, I would say another saint that is big is uh, I have a lot of health anxiety. So uh, saints like Saint Blaise, Saint Dymphna are mm-hmm. are great helps as well. Uh, as far as some of my favorite books, I would recommend. Let's see. I would recommend. I forget the author. It's a priest. You can you can get it through Tan Books. It's called the Manual for Suffering. If uh, anyone wants to get a hold of that, I highly recommend it. It's very useful, very practical. Not only does it talk about suffering, it talks about what you can do about it. Isn't that Father Jacques Felipe wrote that? I believe it's not. He wrote another. He wrote another great book, um, but it wasn't him. It was somebody else. Okay. Uh, it's fairly recently published. Um, so that's a good one um, ca- called to be children of God. I think it was published by Ignatius press mm-hmm. uh, talks about deification in the church and the church's perennial teaching from the new Testament to Vatican II, um and how salvation is much more than just forgiveness from sin. It's partaking in the divine nature. Uh, that's a huge, huge theme for me. Um, Another great book I would recommend is by a non-Catholic who uh, actually founded the discipline of study known as Temple Theology. Her name is Dr. Margaret Barker. She's a retired Methodist preacher. I've had her on my channel about four times to talk about temple themes and Christian worship, the Blessed Mother, the liturgy, um, the Christmas story. But she has a lot of great, yeah, she has a lot of great books. Um, The thing I like about her is uh, she's non-Catholic, but yet a lot of the, the work that she does bears witness to Catholic truths without her trying to import anything or force anything. Mm-hmm. So if there's anybody that's curious, I, I always recommend her books. Uh, the, uh, the Great High Priest is one of them. Another one would be um, The Angel of the Lord, A Study of Israel's Second God. Uh, that's a big one. That was a big one for me because as a Muslim, I was always taught that the idea that Jesus was divine came later. 
but she shows how um, Jesus is always seen as divine because it's based in a temple setting. And, you know, the Davidic king was seen as the presence of God or Emmanuel with the people. Uh, he was anointed and he was the son of the most high God and the son of the great lady. And he was seen as a quasi divine figure. Um, of course, Jesus is more than that. He's the, he's the in, incarnate Lord. He's the enfleshment. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic king. But yet and still, the Davidic king still had this cult where he was seen as a divine figure once he was anointed. And it's interesting because we mentioned Psalm 45 earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, God is talking to Solomon. So the, the psalm is split in two, right? It talks about the king, but it also talks about the queen mother. Right. God is, God, God is talking to Solomon and he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he calls Solomon God. So we have an in- interesting in the Old Testament that the Davidic king is called God and he has a queen mother. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I would recommend anything by Dr. Margaret Barker if anyone's interested in temple theology. Uh, Manual for Suffering, Called to be Children of God, about deification or divinization. And, uh, yeah, and if you know what? Rome Sweet Home is always a, always a great read. That's one of the uh, things that's... Yeah, softened my wife up to the Scott to the and church. Shirley Hahn. Yeah, yeah, that yep. that is a that is a great one. Well, I, I'll give you. I'll, I'm going to give you one one of my uh, go to saints, um, and then I'll give you my favorite book. Now, I have read, I mean, <laughs> literally twenty thousand pages in Catholic books in the last couple of years. It's incredible. I've gone through the entire mystical city of God. I've gone through the entire. Uh, um, you know, in Catherine Emmerich's uh, um, visions, a uh, diary of St. Faustina, I've gone through most of the tan classics uh, that mm. you talked about with, with uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're talking about uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, Therese of Lisieux, you're talking about Catherine of Siena, just on and on and on. Yeah. Two books that had particularly great impact on me and one was a book um the author's name escapes me right now Uh, let me pull it off the bookshelf here um by abbe francois trokin is the name of the author and the book is on saint bernadette subaru and i i named my daughter after her and I had this book on my shelf for 20-something years. And finally I said, you know, I bought that book 20-something years ago for my daughter. And unfortunately, she never read it. And I said, I'm going to read this book. It had such a profound impact on me, uh, how heroic mm. her virtue was and, and uh, the suffering that she went through at the end of her life that a lot of people don't realize and understand. So I have a special affection for St. Bernadette. The other book that really opened up my eyes, and and one of the things that comes across about you, Dustin, that's so amazing, or it's amazing to people who don't understand, is you've admitted that you're going through these trials with different mental illnesses and, and all these difficulties, anxieties and all these difficulties, and yet you sound every bit like a joyful person. Uh, yeah, and I mean, were, and, 
Oh, go ahead. Sorry, brother. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you remind me of, of, of Paul in Colossians 1 when I rejoice in the midst of my sufferings. And in my flesh, I fill up what is lacking in the in the sufferings of Christ. This idea, this incomprehensible idea to the world that you can have joy and suffering in, 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 in your heart at the same time. They can both yeah. be present. That's um, actually one of my life verses, Colossians 1.24. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's this it's this idea of having one foot in Good Friday and the other foot in Easter Sunday. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. So one of the one of the books that had the most impact on me, probably the most impact on me, was Dark Night of the Soul by Saint mm. John of the Cross. Have you read that book? Uh I've read I I've actually have it, but I haven't read it yet, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Probably should, um, though. Yeah, you need to read that book. I'm going to give you one insight from this book that just blew me away, and then we'll then we'll end with a closing prayer. All right. I remember years ago, I used to struggle with this idea of Jesus crying out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I used to really struggle with that. Wait a minute. Here is Jesus, who is God crying out to God that he has been abandoned by God. How is that possible? That It's just not workable. It just doesn't seem workable. Yeah. Uh, and St. John the Cross explains that what is happening in that moment is that Jesus has in some mystical way shrouded temporarily shrouded his divinity, masked it, covered it up, kind of like they, they cover up the statues during the last week of Lent. <laughs> he mm. put a cover, He shrouded his own divinity for, for a very short time in order to completely submerge himself into his humanity because it was the only way that he could experience the suffering of feeling abandoned by God. That immense suffering that a soul goes through, that despair, that blackness that a soul goes through when they've reached such a low point in their life that they feel like God has abandoned them. Uh, full disclosure, I've reached that point at times in my life. I've been there, mm. okay? Uh, and it's not a fun place to be, okay? But Jesus connected with that experience, with that sorrow, with that pain in order to bless it and make it holy and sacred. That deep and profound suffering he identified with, experienced with, in order to make it deep and holy so that, and this is what St. John of the Cross said, it was, it was a mind bomb to me, so that at the precise moment that you feel like you're abandoned by God is the precise moment that you're actually closest to him. Well, that's deep. That yeah. is really, wow. that is not something I could come up with by myself. I just couldn't. And no that doubt. Impacted me, that impacted me so much. Reading that in that book is like, how unsearchable are you, God? How 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 yeah. far above us are you? Um, our minds can't comprehend that you allowed yourself to experience that so that I could be connected to you when I experienced that. 
And uh, I'm going to leave it with that, and I'll ask you, humbly ask you to leave us with a closing prayer, if you would. Okay, brother. Thank you. Uh, In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, Father, I just want to thank you for uh, Brother John and our special time today. Thank you for the gift of your son and his sacrifice and the love between you, which is your all-holy, precious, and life-giving spirit. Thank you for the gift of all your angels and saints who in you, most holy trinity, can be partakers of your nature and assist us on this road and this journey in this valley of tears and uh, help distribute your graces so that the body of Christ may be built up and that you may be all in all. I just ask that you bless everybody who's listening this evening, bless their family and their friends. Um, Bless John and his family, his friends, his acquaintances, and his efforts, his ministry. Uh, Bless this program. And uh, thank you for the gift of your holy Catholic Church and bringing us to the fullness of faith, something that is pure grace that we can never do on our own and we don't merit. Thank you for the gift of faith. I pray that you give us the grace of final perseverance that we endure to the end and so are saved and don't shrink back on the day of the Lord. And um, I just ask for the prayers and intercessions of all the angels and saints, especially the Most Holy Virgin Mary, Mother of God, Most Holy Theotokos, save us. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. It's been an amazing, amazing show tonight. I want to thank you. I hope that you'll come back again at some point. And uh, I hope that uh, I could come on your program some point, although full disclosure, um, I'll, I'll have to learn how to smoke cigars. I, I, I don't really do that, but uh, if that will if that will endear me to your audience, I'll, I'll be glad to do that. Uh, I want to thank you again. You have a blessed uh, evening and a wonderful weekend. And until next time, this has been the four persons. God bless you, everyone, and goodbye.